to me now, or if this is just a really cleverly thought out pre-recorded tape that you're playing. <laughs> Every time we speak, even in person, I get the same vibe. <laughs> yeah. I just suddenly went, yeah, if you suddenly said something like off script and then I just started like responding to obviously clearly the wrong questions. So I'll be like, it's next Tuesday, I think. Yeah, if I if I met if I met you in person and I said, um, oh yeah, I've been ill the last couple of days with a bit of a cold, and you said, no, I, I haven't seen Billy Blanks in Expect No Mercy, and I, and I, that's weird. You you're a robot. That must be <laughs> worse. Like I watched, I've actually watched the film recently, half of the film that that, that was a sort of plot point in where they they reality their reality they were suffering from schizophrenia and they had like a list of things they mentally mm-hmm. went through whenever. Whenever they met someone, they didn't know if they were real. It's like, is anyone else reacting to what I'm seeing? That must be terrifying if you're just like sat there talking to someone who's like clearly non-existent. And, and then you look up and they're gone. And you think, ah, oh, I was having a really nice conversation with a figment of my imagination. Fantastic. What a waste of a couple of good one-liners. They make bloody good movies, eh? <sighs> yeah, actually, it a lot of crap movies, which are really inaccurate well, about one, mental illness. This- yeah, which is one of your favourite things, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, bad, bad policing is funny, but like when you watch something that's like not a true representation of mental health, it's like I suppose in some avenues it's actually quite dangerous because yes. I suppose you you have conversations about people with certain uh, physical disabilities, like asthma is very rarely presented accurately. Um, yeah. But then when you're talking about mental health, and it, it's it's like something that it could be um, could really be explored, and it just never is. I'm pretty sure that virtually no occupation is accurately represented in cinema purely because if if it's a job and it's sort of done day by day for like eight hours a day or whatever um then it by its nature is not going to be exciting enough to make a film about so you have to in some way condense it into the most interesting parts which is why of course like you watch like cop thrillers and they do not do a <laughs> single lick of paperwork at any point you see if, if in 48 hours like for example like when that brilliant scene with nick nolte goes in and just shouts his way through the police station opens his desk drawer and just remember he, he doesn't just put bullets in his pocket for the end they're like rolling around his desk and he just picks them up and like just puts them in his jacket pocket and they're rolling around. You know that his, his supervisor would come in and say, uh, Nick, you've we're firing you, you've lost your job, and he'd say, Oh, what the fuck are you talking about? You can't die out and they'd say, You're fired because because you react like this to every situation. <laughs> yeah. <Nick? laughs> exactly. And you haven't done a lick of paperwork in years. <laughs> a lick of paperwork as well. <laughs> so you haven't you haven't done a spot of paperwork since we've been here for twenty five years. It's <laughs> really <laughs> Yeah, but I have noticed that in uh like counselling and psychotherapy, especially really poor representation, because they usually, of course, in movies, they're usually just like advisors or life coaches or mentors. They because it's not that interesting to watch someone like actively listening and being non judgmental in front of someone for an hour. Not a, yeah. not very interesting at all. Yeah. What what was, what was that film about? Well, it was just um, went to the cinema to watch it. It was about someone sort of um, just exposing you know, buried childhood traumas while while someone sat up at the nodding and just being supportive and uh, gently offering advice. Like, oh, I can't believe it cost two hundred million. It's a bit of a bit of a sway <laughs> for Marvel, to be honest. Yeah, I didn't notice the CGI though. Slipped <laughs> it in there. <laughs> um. So yeah, welcome to Kino Kingdom Fifty Nine. And um, I, I have been ill with COVID. I've had round two with COVID. I've officially retired from having COVID now. I don't think I'll get it again. It's boring now. Yeah. But so how many times is that? Six, seven? 
No, just the twice, just the okay. twice. I did the second time just to see if I wasn't as keen on it as I thought I was the first time and I was right. It was like, no, I'm not enjoying this. But You just needed course, a check. Um, the the one the one good thing about having COVID is because you're just filled with this soul level exhaustion. All you want to do is just lie down, but you can't sleep because you're too like hot and coughing all the time. Yeah. You watch movies. You watch movies. Well, so that's, I, I, that's fortunate. That is. I watched. I know because as you're like co-host a podcast about those very things, it's been quite handy. So I, I've watched a few films and then um, w- with a great deal of focus as well. So. Um, and it's quite a nice mix I've got this week actually because I've got some that I've seen before uh, and and wanted to revisit some that I thought I liked and maybe didn't and and new ones as well. Um, I always ask this to you, but have you got a theme? Or um, not especially. Bad movies seems to be a certain <laughs> actually it's quite a lot of horror going on. Yeah, it's oh. a bit of yeah, yeah. It's mostly horror, mostly horror. Good. I suppose I suppose we are approaching Halloween. We are getting yeah. general area <laughs> close enough for you to think. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to watch a lot of horror now, really. <laughs> I've got a couple of horror films, um, but what I've also got is the Arkansas results um, mm-hmm. from last time. So uh, I shall let me pop them up near. So our loving audience had to get from Christine Taylor. To Keith David, and um, I had a few responses. Um, we had one from Mike and Transvaal, and they said Christine Taylor was in The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler. It was in Happy Gilmore with Ben Stiller, who was in Something About Mary with Keith David. So a little three-stepper there. Okay. Laszlo and Utah uh, both had the same response with Yo. What I I have what I suspect is the same answer that many others will have. Well, one other in uh, in this case, Christine Taylor was in Dodgeball with Ben Stiller, who was in this something about Mary with Keith. How do you get the beans above the Frank David? And Max <laughs> said, "This is my Arkansas." Christine Taylor was in Dodgeball with Justin Long, who's in Die Hard 4 with Brucey, who's in Armageddon with Keith David. So that's a nice one. It tickles me because Max usually, there's usually like a rom-com thrown in there or some film from the early 2000s that has completely slipped my mind. Yeah. So of course, I like how it was in Dodgeball and I thought, yeah, I know where this is going. Oh, no, with Justin Long. Oh, okay, okay. It should really be mandated that whenever Max does one of these, one of the steps has to involve a film whose poster has someone leaning against their love interest, perhaps with a tie over their shoulder, and a mock disapproving look on the woman's face, perhaps. We, once again, are brought back full cycle to Matthew McConaughey in failure to launch, aren't we? This is, it does tickle me. Because, of course, I'm, I'm on Twitter, and, and you often see Matthew McConaughey, and he's, he's, he's released a book that I think is called Green Lights, and it's just yeah. him just saying, like, life, life-affirming uh, comments, and, and it's yeah. him, like, in a, in a cornfield with a cup out and saying things like, you know, when uh, yeah, the wind blows and, uh, you know, things are just, they're, change, they're changing, you know, you got to take the horse by the reins. And, and I'm thinking, you were in failure to launch, mate. I know it's a hair flex, <laughs> so wind it in a touch. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I do fancy Matthew McConaughey, i got to say it. But uh, it, w- yeah. it would be nice for, I do think it should be, like, arbitrary every every week for someone to, like, send, send in um, 
send in like the actual Arkenstar and then do like a stream of consciousness Arkenstar. I mean, even if it's like a like uh, the men who talk at outlook.com is the email address. Even if it's just like a rambling woman that goes on for like three or four minutes and I'll just fade it in and out as they just like, pump out these films and eventually get from one to the other. I love <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's a four hundred stepper. Um, so yeah. Um, so if you if you if you if you've got nothing pertinent, I wouldn't mind kicking off because I just wanted to briefly talk about a film that you've actually covered uh, before, but I just wanted to sort of quickly mention it. If that's cool. Okay. Let me uh, let me cover my Arkansas first because. Oh God, sorry. Yes, I do apologize. I th- I, I I thought everyone was going to get this very easily, and I'm not sure now. I've heard everyone's. I'm not sure whether I've got it wrong, but I'm pretty sure I, I have got it right. Uh, I, I will say so. Is, is, if this is, we have the two. The, let me just get the the results up again. The the two stepper was uh, Christine Taylor's in Dodgeball, the Ben Stiller, who was in the Something About Mary with Keith. How'd you get the beans about the Frank David? Um, I did have a message off Utah, a voice message that said, "I am sure they've been in a film together, but I cannot place it." So I'm intrigued as to what your next step is going to be. Uh, Christine Taylor is in Zoolander uh, with Owen Wilson, who's in Armageddon with Keith David. Oh, so I thought you were going to have a one step and then a single yeah. step. No, single so, step. No. So I two, literally two. don't know her from anything else, pretty much. But you say that, and yet when I watched it, I thought she's one of the like the, the most classically pretty women I've ever seen, I think. She's astonishingly pretty. Yeah, like astonishingly attractive, like striking. And then... Um, but but with like you say, I only know it from a handful of films, and it's it's um it's quite telling that Ben Stiller said, "I'm probably going to marry you." To be honest, when he was with her in Dodgeball, he said, "I think I'm going to show you my bum at some point." That's where he wrote on a playing card that he slipped across the desk to her. <laughs> at some point, you're going to see my bottom. Um, <laughs> he wrote it in crayon on a Rizzler. Um, I by the way, one of my um one of my mutual friends, um Alex Davis. I realized he has a saying that he brings out quite often. Uh, and I, I realized that it sounds really gentle, but it's clearly about sexual activity. Um, and it's, it's uh, um, you know, you get like, um, oh, how are the shears? Oh, God, they're up and down like a manic depressive on a trampoline, that kind of thing. Um, if, if he says, like, oh, how are you feeling? God, I'm up and down like my bum in bed. <laughs> And I, because it, because it, it uses the word bum and it's so brief, it sounds like a silly throwaway saying like "heaven's the Murgatroyd," but it's like up and down like my bum in bed. It's like that's yeah. shagging, that is. Yeah. That's shagging. It's got a bit of alliteration in there, so it sounds yeah. kind of jokey. But yeah, it's shagging. Sounds, <laughs> you're talking about the missionary. So yeah, it just tickled me. So up and down like my bum in bed is my um, my saying of the week, which is <laughs> now a feature. <laughs> yeah. Mildly, <laughs> mildly sexual innuendos. It's not really a sexual innuendo, really. No, it's just they were, a reference to sexual activity. They were mildly, mildly sexual innuendos that were a pretty good punk band from Boston in the early '80s. <laughs> if I cast my mind back, um, yeah. I, well, so yeah, just to just to kick us off, then um, I watched again when I was in the 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 fits of COVID fever. I watched Event Horizon, and. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's an interesting one because I was watching it, and I think that I've always thought, I think that I've always thought, um, I, I've always enjoyed this film, and I never really knew why. I just found it really, not just watchable, really re watchable. And I understand that I people say it falls apart at the end, and, and I was bearing that in mind, bearing in mind what you said about it's a great setup and it does fall apart at the end, and the extremely dated CGI in some aspects. Yeah, but uh, put it on. It was almost like a quite spawn level. 
nothing is that level that is like the absolute nadir of cg as far as i'm concerned when it cuts to the devil what michael j white should have said is fucking hell is that the devil or is that like am i playing a ps1 game i don't know what's happening i'm not holding a controller um yeah so I watched this again, and and I absolutely agree with with what people say in how um yeah just to sort of uh, summarize what we sort of said what you've said before is that Event Horizon it's it's a sci-fi horror um which I think is secretly one of my favorite subgenres where um a group of people effectively go into the into the depths of deep space to try and find out what happened to this previous ship called Event Horizon that has um, been to effectively another reality and back, and the, and the crew has gone completely silent. And that's pretty much the setup. Um, but it, it does have a really good setup, and it has a really good setup because it does the alien thing of, you know, everyone has their place, everyone's got their own personality, um, and everyone as well is um, going back to the whole... Uh, professionalism in in movies thing everyone is like it's pretty good at the job um like only one or two characters like kind of lose it a bit but they're still on point and they're still doing the job they're not like openly just panicking mm-hmm. um and i do think that as as the film goes on that it turns more towards horror um it, it does lose its way a little bit and the end gets a little bit sort of silly and rambling but it never loses me as a viewer because i think i've got that nostalgia for it because i've seen it so many times mm. i was <laughs> the one thing about sorry to cough for a second like covid hangover um one of the things i noticed this time was when i was reading about it as the the opening sequence was kicking off was that um there's a there's a 130 minute cut of this somewhere and it looked kind of like the clive barker's nightbreed thing where and i and because this film is i think it's like what 90 100 minutes so it's yeah, yeah 90 minutes zips by doesn't it yeah and and i was thinking oh do you know what i'm I'm really because I'm still waiting for the perfect moment to watch that three hour cut of Nightbreed because I love Nightbreed so much. I'm I'm waiting for like the perfect time. And the same as I think with this, if it was ever rediscovered and they said, look, there's a two, two, two hour, 10 minute cut of this. I can imagine I would be really hips deep into it because there's just something about like the pacing of the film and the music and the. um, Lawrence Fishman's character is amazing. He's so practical and. Mm. And I, and I love, uh, and I, in the face of that practicality, Sam Neill's pretty much instant descent into absolute madness and insanity. Yeah. He's so yeah. keen. Yeah, he's, he's already having visions before he's cleaned his teeth. He is uh, undermining things <laughs> in that place. Um, but yeah, I do appreciate that. And this is something which is, it, it's a bugbear of mine. And I'll talk about this in a minute. But where the crew just doesn't seem... A, they don't seem like adults. B, they don't seem competent in any way. I find that really forced. It's it's like that forced drama thing we've talked about before. You know? Okay. What well, in Event Horizon? Um, where where it it's almost like it like you're 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 forcing drama out of uh putting a bunch of completely unconvincing characters together. Essentially, is what I'm saying. All right, I'm with you. Um. Yeah, so I just just want to say that that I, I, it, I still it still holds that um, it still holds that rewatchability for me. And although it's CG is dated, I still feel when I'm watching it. Yeah, this is this is the film I kind of remember. This is I'm getting out of this film what I want and what I enjoy. Um, so is there actually a two-hour, ten-minute cut of it? Apparently so. They you know they say um, 
what's the, the Paul W. S. Anderson possibly his best film. Let's stop pissing around. Um, he, he was talking about how it, it is out there and it's the footage might have been deleted or, or burned or lost or whatever. But he said, you know, mm. he used Clive Barker's Nightbreed as an example and said it. You that's been discovered. So if it did come back and I had some time, maybe I'd re-edit it and get it back together. And I would hundred percent watch it because I think. I don't know. I think it's. I think it's like a personal classic to me. I just think yeah. it, it's. It's that. It, it, it's a ninety-minute sci-fi horror film. It's like, well, to steal the words of Utah Smith, this is what's going to happen. It's happening. It's happened. Boom. And it, like, I love it. Turn it off. Go to the bed. The key to great screenwriting. But Ooh. yeah, it's not a personal classic to me. But I can see my main issue with it as a horror movie is it's it it it's so fast-paced, so hyperactive. It's almost like it's fighting against being a horror movie somehow. Whereas if, you know, it depends how they use that extra 40 minutes or whatever. Because if, if you can pad, pad out some of the tension scenes, you know, uh, then great. You know, make it into a proper horror movie. Uh, if it is just a load of extra, like, rambling, verbose, irrelevant nonsense, then that's a different story. You know, so, but... I, I remember reading about it at the time in Empire magazine and Paul W. S. Anderson. I mean, they always do this. They always refer to the great films, but he was talking about wanting to make like the shining in space. And I thought when I remember thinking when I watched the film, I thought, well, this is nothing like the shining, is it? Because it's like an action movie. And I'm, I don't doubt that there is a longer, more. Oh, Alexa just woke up. That's creepy. Just as I was talking about supernatural horror film. Um, <laughs> um Yeah. But um, just yeah. as you were talking about Pulse with Clifton Young, <laughs> like it couldn't be more different to The Shining, really. I mean, other than a few creepy corridor scenes near the start, but and the, and the imagine, whole wife wife thing, yeah, yeah, which I always, which is genuinely scary, you know, when you first see it. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, mm. Just really quickly as well, just talking about Paul W. S. Anderson, I'm looking at his. He's done some films I didn't realize because I quite like Soldier from '98. And then he's got a load of other films, and then he's got Pandorum, which I didn't know he. Re- and, and again, that's another film I want to watch again because that's another. That? Uh, he produced it. Okay. So that that's because his, yeah, I mean it falls into his kind of wheelhouse, doesn't it? I suppose. Yeah. So I, I'll have to watch Pandorum again because that's another one I really enjoyed, and of course that's got the ever reliable Ben Foster in it. And uh, by the way, yes. I was flicking through something on like Prime War the other day, and Warcraft came up. And I and I pointed at the screen to myself and I said, "That is a good film." And yes. like I, I feel no particular need to revisit it apart from to just prove the fanboys wrong, like just to get it, give it another viewing. Because when that came out, I thought, "Good, Toby Kebbell was amazing," and then everyone slaughtered it. And I thought, "What is what is wrong with people?" It was the first time I was disappointed in a fan base. No, I'm not. I'm yeah. not even part of. It. I just thought, "Oh, come on, guys, just embrace." I didn't it. think it. I didn't know that hated really. I just. I, I think my disappointment was that it was just treated as yet another lame, like, video game adaptation. But it's clearly more than that. I mean, there's a lot more love put into each frame than, you know, I don't know, the tomb, the latest Tomb Raider or the Uncharted movie, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, well, I watched the Tomb Raider film in about... It took about four hours in a hotel with, like, loads of adverts. So it, it, all of the travel was completely removed. Um of course, Paul W. S. Anderson made obviously made Resident Evil. He also made Mortal Kombat. Mm, that. That's good as well. That's good. But I think I prefer event. I, mean, I love Mortal Kombat in a in a in a sort of silly, funny, bouncy, cheesy way. Yeah. But 
I, I genuinely like Event Horizon. If you know what I mean, I, I watch it and I think, yeah. And I think it's just because of the, the cast and you've got Sam Neill, who my fans hate, and then Lawrence Fishburne, who's just, he's very good at taking command of a scene as if he genuinely is running mm. it. I suppose there is one connection to The Shining in a way, in the Sam Neill's character, I suppose, because Sam Neill is like Jack Torrance. Yeah, kind of wants them all to yeah. stay there doesn't he and also yeah. like jack torrance he goes bonkers the second he steps foot in the place yeah when he's standing there and he's hacked his eyes out and he's covered in scars with a shaved mm. head and he's glistening and he's just completely mutilated and he says to Lawrence fishburne we need to stay here what Lawrence fishburne should have said is do you have a pocket mirror because i think once you look at yourself you'll think can we shoot off <laughs> things have taken a turn, haven't they? Things have taken an Ed Boon. Um, so, yeah, that was Event Horizon, um, which I, I still yeah. really like, and I'll probably talk about next year at some point on this show as well. <laughs> I will very quickly talk about Underwater, because I caught up with this. Mm. Uh, nice, but, okay. Yeah, and, and, and I, I didn't really like it, I must say. Oh, that's a real shame. Yeah, so this is the one where Kristen Stewart is trapped in this burning facility six miles under the ocean with a motley crew of engineers and people like that and they're these monsters descending to kill them these mermen um and i thought the lighting was good and the production design was very impressive uh the fact the first thing you went to is the lighting shows what view you had of this film Robert. well it's always but it is genuinely important in a horror to be fair but I thought the script was at best bland and I thought in terms of action that I couldn't tell what was happening to who most of the time. It it was one of those, it felt like one of those experiential horror thriller things like Gravity. It reminded me a bit of that where it, you even get that atonal, dirty, grinding metal type music and, and it, to me, those sorts of films, are, Gravity is the ultimate example of it, and it's not as bad as Gravity, to be fair. But these sorts of films, when I call them experiential, I mean, it's almost like it's an attack on the senses. It's like they're designed to overwhelm the senses and they to lock you into a kind of like a flow state, really. But I think it's, it's the equivalent of like a Paul Greengrass fight scene. You know, the a lot is a lot is passing before your eyes. You get a sense of something happening, but it's kind of non-specific. And so, yeah, I, I didn't like I, the high I've, I've got to say that like, on the flip side of that, I think that for me, what you get, that, like, especially in Underwater, that, that, that so you said grinding metallic soundtrack to me was, was almost like um, it was trying to capture the sound of the facility sort of collapsing in itself, like the sound of metal <laughs> twisting and stuff. And also yeah. when you say that... Um, you, if you you get the sensation that you're not really sure what's happening to whom, and, and I think for me it was again they were really good at their jobs and they were very professional, which I really enjoyed. But and as they're going on, it's almost the 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 darkness and the lighting and the way that you're not sure what's happening sort of reflects what the characters are feeling and that they not they're not sure of the situation and then someone will get pulled away and then you're not sure and then the sort of water the, the sort of washy foamy water clears and another one of them has fallen, and and yet they plow on. I I actually thought that worked when I watched it. I think it. that can work. I know what you mean. Like, but I think it, it's 
in this movie it's all it's gone up his sleeve that's how i felt about it like every single sort of thrill was based around confusion and which is probably quite well i say realistic i mean it's not exactly the most realistic concept in the world but i suppose it's how they would experience it yeah i I think this is uh, i think for me that what was that film with the the ice truckers or whatever it was with you know and where it's with liam neeson and it's him and i thought it was going to be like man versus nature and it's just like a silly baddie versus goody film and i remember saying to you on the podcast i was really disappointed in that because i wanted like sort of a a, a human versus nature situation and then and then laszlo bucket suggested underwater and then i watched that in the same mindset and it was very much that like it's very one-dimensional it's like this is this is the situation they're in this is what they're trying to do and this is their journey. And I think that I must have approached it to a totally different mindset to you because I was completely like on board with what happened and how one dimensional it was and how it was just all about like snatches of dialogue and panic and then composing themselves and, and moving on to the next awful scenario and just how they dealt with it. So, yeah, I, I, I still you haven't swayed me. Not that we're trying to sway each other, but yeah, I, I still feel. I, yeah. I think that what you're saying isn't valid to, to how I view the film. Um, yes, that's that's fair. I would say that I like the performances, especially uh, Vincent Cassell and Kristen Stewart. I thought they were good. They were convincing and they had gravitas. But they, I think they're elevating quite a poor script. And it's like it was like clockwork. The way I mean, they don't really develop the characters for any real nuance or interaction or temperament. It's like they just give them a quiet moment to explain what tragedy broke them in the past. And I just thought it's a bit lazy. I thought that they, they, they weren't explored because they, they're, they're basically stripped down to their like fundamental um, jobs on the ship, effectively, yeah, aren't they? I appreciate that. But I think with a better screenplay, you can bring across more character through those snatches of dialogue. I think about okay. yeah. something like... I mean, like something like Alien, which obviously this owes an awful lot to, like it was so good at, you know, he gave most of the characters really very precious little dialogue, but it said so much with the few snatches it did give them, like it will be a kind of dinner party scene and you'll have that interaction and it will tell you all you need to know sort of thing. Or you'll have like a very brief exchange between sort of like the engineers, Yafrit Koto and Harry Dean Stanton or whatever, and the, between them and a kind of the upper brass sort of thing. And it will tell you what you need to know about those characters, and that's it. That's all it needs, and it's just clever screenwriting. And I felt that this didn't – maybe it's because of the nature of the film, because it starts off and things are just exploding instantly. So there wasn't really much time to develop as characters, I suppose. Um, but, yeah – it didn't quite do it for me. I don't think it was a terrible movie. I just didn't. I. It felt like or it, continuing the Alien comparison. Alien felt like a B movie that was elevated to art, whereas I felt this was a more like a B movie that just took itself a bit too seriously. I mean, oh. I'd say it's somewhere between Deep Rising and Alien. 
That's fine. I mean, the thing is, whereas you, you might think that I would just take your comments on board and then, yeah. you know, just assume we have different views of it and, you know, set what I'm actually going to do is not that. I am going to um, sort of snort derisively for the rest of the podcast. And then after it, I'm going to go online and I'm going to find every negative comment made on any forum about this film, set up a profile and then do character assassinations on anything that anyone says yeah. negative. Yeah, just go on a massive doxing campaign. <laughs> sounds pretty good. Yeah. Um, excellent no no well, I'm, I'm, genu- I'm, ge- yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely uh obviously i would have loved to as it, to enjoy it as much as i did but no that, that's fair enough it is not the worst film i saw this week is um <laughs> is is the uh, sci-fi horror film that we couldn't say oh it's a debt to alien uh It's quite a tricky. It depends. It depends what kind of a sci-fi horror film. I mean, like, it, especially something like Underwater, obviously does. But going to Event Horizon, say, you see, other than the isolation, I think Event Horizon owes a lot more to a lot of other films before something like Alien, because obviously, it's, for a start, it's not about aliens. So there's that. But also, there is much more of the shining in it, I suppose, and even a hint of, dare I say it, Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris. <sighs> Not sure he would have completely appreciated it as a as an homage, but I know what you mean. Like certain films are such sort of uh, foundational pieces of work, aren't they? That it's you, you're never going to fully escape the shadow. It's like you know, like, no, you're not going to get a sci-fi movie that doesn't owe a little something to 2001 Space Odyssey, but that's okay. I mean, you can still make good films. <laughs> <laughs> still have, I'm sure Kubrick isn't rolling in his grave whenever anyone sets anything beyond the worst atmosphere. <sighs> yeah, so if they drive beyond, like... Cliddach Vale, he's like, oh, here we go, ripping me off already. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and they've gone above 3,000 feet sea level. <laughs> Thieves. So, uh, what, what is your, uh, what's your next movie? Ooh, we're going straight into the next one, which is called Bad Milo! Exclamation mark. Mm. Well, this, uh, on this podcast, there's a theme of... Um, anything that any title of a film that involves any kind of exclamation mark or question mark isn't there yes yes um this i watched on rakuten the worst streaming service so (laughs) this is a 2013 comedy horror hence the exclamation mark i suppose ken marino plays this quite beta man beta beta anyway beta i think it is i've done some research he's a beta man who's He's constantly super stressed and it turns out that one of the reasons he's stressed is because he has a monster growing in his stomach. Uh, and when someone stresses him out even more to the point where he's feeling full of rage, the monster will emerge from his ass and attack them before returning to its nest in his stomach. Back up his ass. This is a real film. Obviously, he wants to stop this from happening um although it does also give him a sense of power and control and a kind of outlet for his rage and his sense of revenge so it's 
a question of can he overcome these dubious benefits and get rid of this creature forever obviously even just given the description you can tell it owes a lot to like early 80s trash horror i would say especially like basket, basket case yeah, yeah exactly especially basket case um but also something like brain damage which was a, a tumor horror movie and then and then even stuff like ghoulies and critters stuff so it's extremely crude very scatological sense of humor lots of jokes about the ass but also masturbation as well so you know a bit of variety um there's occasionally some amusing deadpan responses to the reality of this arse-based monstrosity but it is kind of one joke um the gore is totally disgusting and it includes someone having their penis bitten off by this ass beast which is lovely peter stamari he is in it and he plays this bullshit hypnotherapist who's he's got a parrot who keeps saying things like witch doctor and things like that which is quite amusing and at one point he like stamari he like helps discover what this thing is living up his ass this guy so he brings out this ancient text um, so this like ancient like parchment uh, describing the myth of creatures emerging from the arse and it's like with all these ye all these sketches uh, so that bit he gets pretty much the best moments really um, and who does that is that that's is that Peter Steve Samari. oh Peter Samari does that right okay. yeah yeah so yeah it, it's it's a film that's constantly going through this shock value or gross out and it does get quite wearying quite quickly I think the original basket pay, basket case got away with it because it was cheap as hell. And actually, the basket case sequels two and three, they had a bigger budget, but they also had this essentially wholesome aspect about them, about this kind of the solidarity of freaks, which was quite weirdly nice um, in a kind of twisted, surreal way. But yeah, it it doesn't bad my life. It doesn't have any of the balance or craft. Uh, that you would be exemplified by someone like Stuart Gordon, for example, who was so good at getting that balance between comedy and horror. Um, doesn't really have any of that satirical humour. It's too self-knowing and too farcical, really. It's it's not grounded in any kind of reality. I know that sounds a bit ridiculous, but it doesn't even have a reality of its own, if you see what I mean, an internal reality, because it's... Wow, because it's made in the 21st century, so therefore it must be self-knowing. Uh, yeah, and it's all a bit too mean-spirited. It's occasionally amusing, I'd say, and just about weird enough to be worth a watch. But I would not say it's some hidden cult classic by any means. Oh, fair enough then. Plus, you'd have to use Rakuten, the worst streaming service, to actually watch it. <laughs> Which is always a problem for everyone. Yes. Even Billy Rakuten. Like, oh, Speaking of Putin, I did find out why it is that, because um, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, one of the amazing features about it was that you couldn't actually go use the app to purchase rentals. And I thought this was ridiculous and I thought it was a feature unique to Rakuten. But actually, it, the same you see the same happening in, on the Amazon app as well. And the reason for it is because if you sell something directly through the app, then Google or Apple Store take a cut. So that's why you're redirected really? to your website so they can take all the profit from your rental. Otherwise, Google will be getting like 30% or whatever. So 
that's the reason. So I'm sorry, mm. Putin. I take it back. You're actually the best streaming service. I'll edit that out. Um, don't worry about that. Yeah, um, slander is really in it. Yeah, it, it would be like uh, I'm sorry, whatever Southampton sounds like. You know, I'm sorry, Rakuten. You're actually the, and then it'll be waste streaming service. The <laughs> waste. Um, I have yet to watch a film on Rakuten. Actually, I, I've I've been sent a, a link on Mubi. Uh, which okay. I, haven't, I haven't watched, but it sounds a bit like Booby, so I'm more inclined to watch something on that than. Um, I think it's uh, quite a, an upmarket type of streaming service. Well, You're well, gonna find, if if you look if you're searching for your well, your Tarkovsky or whatever, then that's probably where you'll find you know, it. It is funny maybe on Turzon or whatever. They, it, it is funny you say that because I was sent the link because someone wanted me to watch the um, new Nick Cave documentary and he met he said oh by the way satan tango's also on there as well i thought well if i've got a space seven hours kicking around to watch a hungarian drama then i'll pop it on won't i um i watched a film called crown vic and this is on amazon prime um and this is i, I don't know if i've mentioned this but produced by alec baldwin um and stars thomas jane now and I'm not sure if this is how clear this is on the on the podcast, but I am a person that very much is attracted to Thomas Jane as a as a human. Um, so and I watched it like he was in one of the worst films I've ever seen in Vice. But I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll give this a goosey. And this is um a sort of Training Day esque film from 2019 where Luke Kleintank is plays an officer called Nick Holland who is. Uh, just just passed all of his tests in the academy and it's his first night on patrol and thomas jane plays um officer ray mandel who is a, a, a very jaded older officer on the force and i thought this is going to be a really good training day-ish movie where they, they're driving around like la at night uh coming across these sort of incidents and you know and and dealing with things and there'll be like another layer to it and there'll be a larger expose of an overarching plot and my trousers will be like floating above me telling me to go to bed because it's late and I'll be hitting them with a stick asking them to leave me alone but what actually happens is it's just Thomas Jane sitting in a car smoking fags uh, just just basically saying things that it sounds like he's written alone in a notebook uh, under the title of like things that sound cool um <laughs> And then it's just Luke Kleintank who starts off as this sort of ha- buzzy, happy-go-lucky cop, just getting more and more like disenfranchised as as the movie moves on. It 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 feels more like collateral than Training Day in that it's mostly mood-based in in a, in a vehicle, kind of like you know as well. The the Crown Vic is apparently the model of like Ford. It's what this brand of Ford is known as in America. You know they would have called this cop car if it wasn't taken up by a superior film starring Kevin Bacon. Such a good film. Um, but it's just, yes, yeah, basically like um, Luke Kleintown driving around saying, oh, you know, oh, really, thanks for giving the opportunity. Looking, looking forward to tonight. It's my first shift. And then Thomas Jane squinting out the window and saying things like, a man's best friends are his fists. It's uh, not... Okay, bit of a non secretary but fair enough. And then um, <laughs> it, it may Tom, be true, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and then Thomas Jane will say, oh, "You know, are you married, kid?" 
And then he'll say, oh, yeah, I've got a wife. And then Thomas Jane will butt in, turn around, look out the window, blow out a load of cigarette smoke and say, the only thing between me and the world is a thin pane of glass. Again, again, not really forwarding the conversation. It's a non-secretary, really. It's almost Uh, like he was asking that purely so he could say something dismissive and cool yeah. and and the, the whole film is like that and Indeed. and you've got you've got thomas jane talking and like tr- on this like strict set of morals you know and like sort of but then they keep on bumping into this this basically this roid head who's just drugged up this undercover police officer who is clearly an absolutely massive liability to the community and thomas jane's just like ah oh, he's, he's all right man he's just you know he's just a bit wound up but this guy keeps cropping up and just having these like ranting monologues that aren't aren't funny and in a film like this where it's basically like two people in the car talking it was two hours long and it it just feels like a lot of this could be edited out because it kind of makes its point and then really labors it Mm. really labors it um and it does build up to a, a sort of like some sort of climax, but I was just not invested. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. It felt like it could have been 40, 50 minutes could have been shaved off. Or if it's going to be this, if it's going to be that length of time and in that kind of that sort of single stage theatrical feel of them mm. being like, you know, in on one stage, it needs to be very, very tightly written. And it was neither, sadly. So Event Horizon you want 40 minutes extra this you want 40 minutes fewer yeah well what i could do is just like 40 minutes before then just knock it off and say oh that was all right that was better because <laughs> that's how films work <laughs> yeah. if you did that with commander you'd miss off the bloody film <laughs> yeah like, where did he go where did he go when he was in that canoe how did he, covered how in did he get to that cats? island yeah who, who were they shooting at when he was downstairs yeah. so many questions <laughs> Questions which cannot be answered even with the full 87-minute cut. Um, okay, let's not watch that then. Um, another film perhaps you should think twice about watching is Moonfall, which is on Prime. I, I put this on um, for about 15 minutes and I just... I, that was I, weird. Yeah, I, I thought... Oh, you're lightweight. This, the setup of it, I thought, I'm not, I'm not really in the mood for this, this kind no. of si- silly Billy film. So well, I'm intrigued as to what the rest of it was like. Where it begins is certainly not where it ends up. But mm. this is famously uh, a offensive independent films ever made. $140 million budget. It made $60 million at the box office. Whoops. So, yes. Patrick Wilson, a man. Oh, boy. Oh, boy as well. Oh, boy. Um... He's all washed up and divorced after a disastrous space mission. John Bradley, the uh, the portly gentleman from Game of Thrones, he, he's this overweight conspiracy crackpot who has to get this. He starts off having to get this anomalous moon data to NASA. And it's quite an amusing opening sequence, actually, where he inadvertently has to pose in a variety of roles in order to get the information to the right people. So he like poses a janitor and a fast food employee and, a, and even an astronaut at one point. So it's quite a, a nice opening. And anyway, the conclusion is that of this data that he's got hold of is that the moon is out of orbit and it's spiraling towards the Earth. And there are three weeks before it collides. So naturally... Uh, that's quite an important thing to factor into it. So, yeah, on one hand, it's quite modern because 
like this is by Roland Emmerich, by the way. So obviously, you know, mm. he's he has a history of disaster movies. But yeah, on the one hand, it's quite modern because actually the the reason the world finds out about this is because it goes viral on Twitter. But but on the other hand, it's quite ridiculously outdated because it's like why why is it this, that John Bradley's character is the sole left field voice that's present in this NASA room like wouldn't there be someone a bit more learned about his particular um conspiracy theory because really what it boils down to is this bonkers mega structure theory which suggests that actually the moon is hollow you'd think they'd really get someone a bit more uh knowledgeable about uh, such theories but anyway and it he's hanging around in the nasa base and in the end he he starts literally correcting NASA scientists on their equations. It's like, okay, this is just some bloke who just walked in off the street. Um, anyway, it's ridiculously fast moving. This is all within the first 25 minutes. All this is happening. I mean, by a half hour mark, society is completely broken down and there's looting and riots. So it um, really moves forward quickly. Then. Oh, it does. And I haven't even mentioned Halle Berry yet. She was, she and Patrick Wilson have got a bit of a history together. And, yeah, she was on that fateful mission with Patrick Wilson um, that opens the movie, and um, she was knocked unconscious right during this during this mission that went wrong. And another astronaut was killed in that incident. There was a massive inquiry about it, and yet at no point did she care to check the video footage of the incident at all. It's only when the moon literally starts falling out the sky that she thinks, "Oh, I better check. I better check the video footage that occurred on that mission when I was knocked unconscious." might be quite relevant something anyway yeah so the film gets bogged down in some tiresome conspiracy theorizing and they wheel out donald sutherland for that literally he's in a wheelchair they just wheel him out for one scene um anyway it turns out it's not really a disaster movie at all it's the enemy is an alien uh and as i said it, it it's all about this hollow moon megastructure theory all of this crap is explained by a terrible child actor in the end in this baffling montage sequence it's literally it's one of the most shameless info dumps i think i've ever seen in a film it's it's on a par in terms of exposition it's on a par with interstellar civil war by albert pian i thought you were going to say then um i forgot the name of the actress who's in um oh, not sicario the first one emily blunt oh. Yes, where she's just there to ask people what's happening. But you, you mentioning Albert Peer now. Oh, yes, he's got oh, to that level. I mean, there are, they, they end up being like hints of contact and AI as well, but obviously it's much worse than either of those films. And it, it really suffers from a serious case of like making it up as they go along type storytelling. <laughs> like, you know, they do end up crashing into the interior of the moon. Uh, <sighs> spoiler alert. And and after having the backstory explained to them, ten minutes later, they're suddenly just given a new spacecraft, uh, and their nuclear bomb has been upgraded, and they're back in the game. It's fine. It becomes a completely different film. Um, so, of the positives, I would say that it's quite an endearing performance by John Bradley, uh, who's the one vaguely original, interesting character in the film. He does become intensely annoying comic relief, but. Uh, Patrick Wilson and Halle Berry are just so 
tight ass and boring that you need something else there and at least it's not rob schneider so could have been worse there's cliche upon cliche in this movie there's like like there's one bit where Halle Berry's superior lies lies to the public about humanity's chances and he said and he says to her you work for me and then Halle Berry says to him I work for the American people which is astonishing line and there's even stuff like someone says god help god help us if you're wrong and then and then someone else says god help us all it's like yeah okay um yeah, that's that's not that's not something that can be salvaged, is it? It's, it's of... not really. And there's a, another line, a classic line, where someone said, "Because someone comes storming in and says this is now a military operation, we'll take it from here." And it's like, yeah, that was bound to happen at some point. Surprise, it wasn't played by Keith David actually, or was it played by Keith David? I don't think it was. Sam, Sam Elliott. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so not a glowing recommendation then. Not really. It's uh, it just gets preposterous even more preposterous towards the end as the moon gets closer it just starts gravity i'm not sure the science is completely there i'm not gonna lie it gets so close to work <coughs> that it's literally knocking the tops of mountains and it like the gravity works by like just acting as like a hoover it just sucks everything up as it passes overhead it's quite ridiculous <laughs> um it's yeah i i've never particularly liked em- roland emmerich's style of I, he always goes for the god eye view of destruction which is impressive but he what he loses is the kind of human level view of these disasters it's almost like because he's watching everything he's observing everything from above it's like paradoxically there's no sense of scale because because the humans are kind of lost in it he's not really interested in the 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 te- the sheer te- like uh mythic terror of nature running amok it's like he just wants to show you big scale destruction it must be it, it must it must be a weird balancing act because i'm just looking at his um obviously directed universal soldier why wouldn't he but um I'm just and stargate as well isn't with with this sort of thing, with because um, you know the last film I talked about like this was um, Dante's Peak, which is obviously on a smaller scale, but it must be quite hard to you. You got this, you know, it's going to be about a volcano erupting or the moon hitting Earth or like an eternal nuclear winter or an ice age or whatever it may be, and it's that you've got to balance that spectacle of what the must yeah. actually like giving people a feel of what that must actually like, and you but you don't want it to turn all alien versus predators and just be about like a small group of humans no so i can imagine it is a balancing act that's hard to do i agree yeah but um i think he doesn't get the balance right a lot of the time i think he's he's all about the money shots and you know it is possible to depict big scale uh environmental horror um from a from a ground level while still being impressive like if you look at something like the impossible uh the the j.a bayona film or or even like the end of james cameron's the abyss with a thousand foot wave like the way it's shot is it is so looming and terrifying that it's like you, you feel so helpless in its shadow sort of thing and so that really works but i just think it's almost like 
he's it's like a, another case of like hand hand the keys to the laptop to the to the to the CGI guys and yeah. see what they come up with sort of thing make it as big as possible and um, I think it loses something because of that it's almost it's so it's so massive scale well, especially something like this it's like it's like a kind of near miss version of Lars von Trier's Melancholia. <laughs> Which I never thought I'd say. Roland Emmerich film. Uh, um, uh, can I do a quick two minute if that's cool? Sure. Again, it's another one you've covered, but I watched when I was ill. It was which is Training Day, and oh, yeah. um, I just wanted to say that what I found about what I felt about this was, and again, if you want to get a full review of this, please go back to Rupert's um, previous uh, review from a few episodes ago. But obviously so the primary setup is you've got Ethan Hawke as a young buck and then uh, Denzel Washington's sort of shady and entrenched uh, character in the the LA underworld Um, and they basically spend a day together that's effectively just like a you know this is is how we roll sort of day this is an average day in the life of a policeman in Los Angeles and it's basically two hours of Ethan Hawke going is it is it? Is it um, though? We haven't done a though? lick of paperwork. <laughs> lick of paperwork, what I'm saying. Um, yeah, you haven't taken your hands out of your pockets. You'd be bloody driving all day. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, it's good, right? You've got Cliff Curtis, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Scott Glenn, Ethan Hawke, Denzel. It's like solid gold. Um, I, I was on board with the film, especially because I really like Ethan Hawke. And what I like about it, it was... And, and I have seen it before, but I don't think I appreciated it as much as this time around, is how how it's just Ethan Hawke being really like disenfranchised and just dis- disillusioned by by like what he's seeing, but how he's a good cop at heart. So he's not it's not about like, oh, is he gonna get bent into this? Is he gonna get caught up and twisted into it? It's just like basically two hours of disbelief on his behalf. Like what? Every time Denzel Washington says, Oh, you gotta you gotta do this, he's like, No, or oh, oh okay, I'll, I'll do that. And then it gets to like a point where it's like, right now you gotta do this. No, I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And um and and I loved it. I love the whole the, the the sort of it is a pacey film. The way it, it's like I can imagine that Denzel Washington was just like worn out after each mm. day from this because he is he just doesn't stop. Lot, like, he? He's constantly on the ball. Um, I, I have to so say that ridiculously streetwise in such a malevolent way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to just as this is the only point I really wanted to make about it. Um, I didn't quite buy the ending and, I, and it could well be the way that it's kind of, you know, him versus the street and the street kind of kicks back sort of thing i didn't i i feel like i'm because that's like absolutely not my way of life i don't i didn't buy it it just seemed yeah i know it seemed a little bit like like um is the term like deus ex deus machina it it was like "Mm, i i don't i don't really buy this this. maybe possibly an issue with david ayer the writer because he also did like dark blue and swat and harsh times end of watch sabotage a lot of these movies do tend to go a bit absurd towards the end a bit like everything that's been built up and is quite convincing can be somewhat thrown out the window towards the end and it can work sometimes um and, and actually it's not always the case i mean i thought that dark blue had a really quite nice ending for example but yeah but you watch something like sabotage my god 
that film just throws all reality out the window. <laughs> well, the end. Astonishing. I'm just looking. Is is um obviously he's, as you say he's, he's directed a lot since Harsh Times in 20, 2005, which I didn't mind. But out of all of his films, um like I liked Street Kings, but again it gets silly. Yeah. Um, yes. I haven't I haven't seen Sabotage. Um, I haven't seen Fury. Suicide Squad, bloody hell. Um, yeah. Bright, Bright had its problems. Um, yes. But I would say, though, that, like, oh my God, hang on, the tax collector, is that the one with? Oh no, sorry, I'm thinking of a different. It's, 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 it's uh, the tax collector, not that one. Um, I would say that I prefer Dark Blue to. I know he wrote that, but I, pref- I preferred Dark Blue to this, and I don't know if it's because yeah. of the on- the ensemble cast, the way it all kind of came together. I did like Street Kings, but again, I'm tainted by how much I like Keanu Reeves in that. But yeah, I, I like Dark Blue a lot, and it, it stays. It, it doesn't really enter that too absurd territory at any point. I, it stays pretty consistent, consistently good, and consistently convincing to the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I like Training Day. I think it's a. I mean, he knows LA, doesn't he? <laughs> he really does. He yeah. really does, and he kind of has this like love hate relationship with it. Clearly, um. So yeah, I mean, I think it's he deals in heightened reality, doesn't he? But I think maybe he needs to come back down to earth after the likes of like Suicide Squad and Bright, I would say. Talking about David Ayer now, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, You've just reminded me of another film I watched. So many of my films are leading on from each other. It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, But yeah, I'll, I shall let you uh, open your mouth and close it and vibrate your vocal cords for a bit now. All right, okay. Um, What was um Training Day on? I can't remember. <sighs> You always say that. 59 episodes and you keep on asking me these bloody stupid questions. I'm going to say it was on Prime. Yeah, why not? No one's ever corrected me, by the way. So when I guess <laughs> that, I just assume I'm right. No one's ever. Yeah, they can always like, just look on JustWatch. TheMenWhoTalkItOutlook.com. Oh yeah, actually, you should. Re- so our, our email address is TheMenWhoTalkItOutlook.com. And what's that website you just mentioned then? justwatch.com nice that's a bloody good website this that is very very useful um and accurate so i watched a film called one dark night on prime um and this is a 1982 horror movie it's strangely well loved in horror circles possibly getting a boost for its obscurity maybe but you know sometimes films are difficult to obtain simply because they weren't very good so <sighs> The basic premise isn't that terrible. So these these college mean girls uh, and they have this club initiation ritual um, and it involves this other girl having to stay a night in a mausoleum. And then those same bullies who challenged her to this, they return at night to freak her out. So pretty solid. But of course, there is a genuine supernatural menace skulking about the place. Um, in the form of a recently deceased killer of young women, no less. Okay. The pacing is terrible in this movie. Uh, like after an hour, we still haven't seen a spook or a kill. Seventy minutes before the first zombie, for God's sake, which isn't a problem in itself. But then that time is just filled with really stilted dialogue scenes and plodding editing and 
overlong shots of people performing boring acts. Like there's a there's a shot of a guy closing a gate, and it will include him like approaching the gate in a car, getting out, walking over, locking the gate, and then we linger on the lock and chain. And it's like, yeah, we get it. He's locked the gate. He could have had so that. He's going sh- to really. shut the gate. Guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not compelling content. So the main focus, anyway, is on Meg Tilly as the girl in the mausoleum, the victimized girl, and and also the girls she wants to impress, plus Meg Tilly's boyfriend who's looking for her, doesn't know where the hell she is. And oh my god, he is interminably looking for her. He's making calls, he's knocking on doors, he's asking locals if they've seen her, and it is completely dull. And it makes no sense why Meg Tilly's character is so desperate to join this sisterhood anyway, because they're clearly bullies. Um and one of them is the jealous ex of her current boyfriend. So it's like, why would you even want to be a part of this? Then there's also this subplot with Adam West and his wife. Uh, his wife is the daughter of this murderer who's buried in the mausoleum. So I guess they're there to provide a backstory. But whenever it cuts to them, it's just a total drag, basically. It's her going on about something called telekinetic vampirism, whatever that is. And and he's just looking at her blankly like she's mental. And there's literally no reason for Adam West to be in this film. Uh, he doesn't even like explain what his wife is up to. So he's just there uh, to stare at her blankly and yeah and also they go on about telekinesis for like an hour right and telekinesis is obviously moving shit around with your mind okay so they go on about this telekinesis and then at one point near the end the wife of adam west closes her eyes and a voice a mysterious voice says to her show me the mausoleum and it's like well, hang about. That's not telekinesis. That's telepathy, isn't it? That's completely different things. So you just change the rules, not telekinesis. So that's rubbish. And then you get to the so-called. It, it, would, be, it would be better if she closed her eyes and a voice said, "This isn't telekinesis." <laughs> yeah. you're, you're barking up the wrong tree, tree. tree. <laughs> um. So, and then you finally get to the so-called good stuff in the last half hour, and the the final attack in the mausoleum with the zombies and that is just basically two idiotic girls screaming on the floor, having mannequins thrown on top of them. And the gore is just totally tame. There's like skeletal faces, a bit of melting skin, but nothing worse than like Raiders of Lost Ark or something. So it's very tame as well. Uh, and nothing makes sense in the end. Um, like why does the main undead dude want to turn Meg Tilly into a zombie? Don't know. Why is the killer's daughter able to instantly transfix him with her gaze makes no sense none of it's explained you, spe- you know they spent 70 minutes showing people locking gates and not explaining any of this stuff it's unforgivable so they just don't put in the legwork to create a coherent context for any of this which is quite f- rubbish when you're watching when you're watching these films like these really bad and i, I you know I'm, I've, I've shifted my order around because i'm going to talk about one next as well okay, when you're watching these films and you're like watching these like trash horrors and, and like you your, your mind kind of like you might just like ha- just tap the pause button to see 20 minutes 22 minutes 24 minutes and and then it gets to a point when you you and i always think the same words i always think this better fucking kick off soon this <laughs> yeah. really better kick off yeah. um but because you don't it gets to a point where you don't want you know when you're watching a horror film and especially as you said with this it's kind of like a well-loved one or whatever you think uh, you know you start off and you we're waiting for like gore or scares 
oh maybe you wait in like oh it's a slow build like some some electricity some bubbling tension and it gets to a point you're just waiting for anything <laughs> like yeah like something happened now but you know uh, you can have movies which are, are you know a low on low on gory incident shall we say but it the the but the time is taken up with still valuable content, if you see what I mean, like character building or atmosphere building or, I don't know, anything really, or just storytelling, how about that? But no, a, a film like this, it's just, it's like they don't have enough content. You know, they threw all their money at the crappy makeup effects at the end. So all the rest of it is just really plodding Um just uninteresting storytelling of people w- either wandering around from house to house looking for Meg Tilly or a load of twaddle about telekinetic vampirism, which is still never explained even by the end. Oh, telepathic vampirism, which is oh. probably going to be the, the, the title of this episode, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> telepathic vampirism. Um, uh, well, I'll continue that then. I'll continue the whole um, sort of shyster horror thing. I watched a film courtesy of uh, my brother Transvaal, who has started going around charity shops, and I, I don't know what his um, what is like sort of um, what's the word criteria is, but he just gives me like a, a load of films and says these are for you for, for KK, and uh, and I thought right. It's become fun actually because I, I like I spread them out in front of Faye's say of an evening so choose one and choose has got to be one of these don't you yeah, dare I, switch Netflix on I I know we pay monthly for like Amazon Prime and uh, Disney Plus and Netflix but like choose one of these four DVDs or the begin with the word the um, choose one of these four DVDs. When I say four DVDs, I mean four films on one DVD. <laughs> yeah. Choose one of these early Jackie Chan films that have never even been near a cinema. Um, there's two. No, there's the four. There's two, two on the back, love. Two on the back. Um, I I watched a film called The Wicked. So thank you, Transvaal, for this. Um, and this is a horror film that was filmed in 2011, not released till 2013, which is always a good sign. And there, yeah. there wasn't a pandemic then, by the way. They just thought, uh, do we need to release it? Yeah. And um, I've got to say, it's been a while since I've watched a film of this level of quality where you think oh, bloody hell after the there's a sequence at the start where there's a girl in bed and she's screaming and the mother comes in and um she says oh you know mommy there's someone in a room and the mother's like no there's not your daughter's talk go back to bed and then the mother goes upstairs and there's like a bright light and a scream and the mother runs in and the daughter's just gone and the windows are open and the and she's sort of thrashing around crying and just you know what you with, with with a film when it hits a certain level of like low budget, it's the lighting, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like oh, yeah, yeah. it's the lighting. You think this is cheap? See, I told and you, I, lighting is the key. Yeah, key no, I, okay, you are. It, the lighting is often the you know the teller. I will admit that. And I paused it and I turned to Faye and said, "Do you want to turn this off?" And she said, "Oh no, because this is the kind of stuff." <laughs> because she doesn't swear because otherwise she would have said a different word there this is the kind of stuff that you watch for your podcast and i want to see like what you get out of it and i said well <laughs> strap yourself in to play and um well what happened was how long is the film four years oh 105 minutes mind for trashy horror and it, it turns it turns to this town um where there's this 
it's all of the horny teenagers and the rumor is mm. that the this witch has a house in the woods and if you go there and if you throw a stone and you smash a window then she'll kill you but if you throw a stone and you miss then she'll leave you alone all these four people go there you know this kind of teenage horny you know oh she oh, loves yeah, me well, she fancies wouldn't you just purposefully just miss don't don't or throw don't. a stone at all this is the thing if, if the best that can happen is she doesn't kill you just don't throw a stone Rupert I wish you had been a script doctor on this film um, because you would have solved the plot hole. So these four, the four people go up there. Well, actually it's six. There's like um, <clears throat> a, there's like a younger brother and his, uh, a girl he's sort of dating goes up there and they go missing. And so the older brother and, and his girlfriend and his friend and his girlfriend all go up to see what's going on. But they turn up there and none of them want to be there, right? They, they kind of like, they're there to camp and sort of snog and smoke weed and oh by the way do you remember before we talked about a film um and i wish i could remember which film it was and it's a load of teenagers and they turn up to get a weekend of debauchery in and they stop and they pick up 12 beers and which is two each it's that it's that one on on like a beachfront remember that slash from the beachfront where the guys oh, fish, fisherman the, dad the mutilator the mutilator and they get 12 beers 12 like 330 ml cans and we said you could drink that and safely drive up there like they said it's not going to last you three days of drinking a dragon in this film they pull over to get some beers and there's four of them and they pick up a six pack of bottles and i thought i would have drunk that on the way back to the car like <laughs> like what are you guys drinking on the drive and then we have to get something else when we're there it was unbelievable anyway so they, they get up there and um yeah so they get up there and bearing in mind that none of them want to be there they're just kind of looking for his brother and just like taking the piss and then someone says oh yeah if you throw a brick or you smash a window then she kills you and if you miss then you don't none of them want to do it and then one of them says oh, okay i'll do it and he picks up a brick and instead of just like sort of half ass throwing it when i missed which would like there's no curse remember there's no problem he launches it with all of his might and smashes a window and then looks shocked and i thought well you didn't have, you didn't have to do that you really did you um but and this is this telling of the quality of the film the window instantly makes this really supernatural sound glows and reforms and and it cuts back to the four people looking at it and they don't react and then a shadow moves past the window and they all panic and scatter into the forest and i thought i if a window reformed in front of my eyes and glowed i'd think that's magic. I'm looking yeah. at I'm looking at like full on 100% Paul Daniels here. But <laughs> yeah, but it kind no. of proves as well. It kind of proves that there is genuinely something kooky going on, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it just proves that this ridiculous curse, however unlikely, it probably is real. So really, that's the moment when you get the hell out of there, right? That's when you frank boff. Yeah. But so what happens is they for, for whatever various reasons they'll run off and the witch tracks them down and they drag them in there and there's sort of this thing where the witch um eats children to remain forever young another bob dylan songs another Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson films. films and 
Uh, but it's really buzzing the way she does it because they, they, of course, when they're talking about <laughs> when they're talking about this curse at the start, when they're like it's bright daylight and they're in the school like yard and they're like, yeah, the witch, you know, she eats every part of your body and and she gets you young and she eats your eyes, she eats your bones. And then of course, what actually happens is the witch puts them on a table and like winds this mincer, minces their legs, and then kind of has a bit of a stew, spits off of it out, and gets a bit younger. Which is quite buzzing to watch her like really, and she's really like struggling to mince them as well, which is quite oh. funny. Um, so that's kind of funny, but then it, it it goes on. It's just like a lot of people running through dark woods, and this witch has these really sort of uh, very vaguely defined powers where she's like teleporting, and then mm. she getting younger and getting older, and and sometimes when they they want to bother, it, it's clearly just like a young buxom woman under there, not even the witch you can see in some shots, and face spotted. She actually made me rewind, um, and said um, that you can just there's one part where they're in the basement trying to get out, and they open the door, and you can just see the person who like pulls the door shut, just like crouched behind it, waiting to wow. close them, and in that same sequence, it's a single white door from the basement, and they push it open, and when it cuts to the camera shot, the other side, it's just clearly like double doors, you know, on a different floor in a different building, so oh it's it's cheaply done, um, and I would say that when it finished, I. I sort of thought, bloody hell, that was cheap. But I was amused. But like, I, I enjoyed my time with it, if you know what I mean. And okay. um, and I realised that it's a film that if you watch with a few people, you could you could kind of pause, rewind, and break down and have fun with. Um, okay. it is, there are so many like inconsistencies in some of the scenes. So The Wicked, uh, 2013, if you can get it on DVD in a charity shop for 10 pence, then it's worth 10 pence. Interesting. Okay. Um, but you can kind of see why it was not. They weren't in a rush to release it. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was like. Um, it was. It, it, it's the teenage thing as well at the start. Like, um, there's a bit. What, what happened at the start? And I thought, really, we're. Um, the, the, oh yeah, there's. there's um, a scene where like someone's father's died and he's he's a ma- magician like the father was a magician or the stepfather was a magician and um and they're all out in the garden smoking weed and someone just walks past and then they just start they're all like really sad and then they see this girl walking past and they just start hurling abuse at her and i thought if i was with all my siblings in a garden smoking weed and genuinely like mourning the loss of my of a parent and then mm-hmm. some girl walked past. I wouldn't stop, and they'd all turn and like hurl abuse at her. I'd probably just probably just let her walk past. Really, that's not really what people smoking weed yeah. do. Probably just probably just like slightly sheepishly go a bit quiet as she went past. Yeah, like there's there's and there's a bit with the dry the um two guys and the um the sort of friends girlfriend is in a car and they're driving and they're talking about this, the, the the girlfriend the sort of newbie to the town that the, one of the guys is like dating or meeting up on this weekend and the other guy who's got his girlfriend in the car sat next to him was like oh she's so hot she's so hot I bet you want to fuck that shit I bet you want to tap that ass and and he's like really like grabbing his crotch and squeezing it and like oh yeah she's mm. so tasty and I thought his girlfriend would probably say can you not talk like that in front of me can you not talk like you're 10 years younger and I'm not here that'd be grand um, so it's full of that kind of stuff. Again, it's just it's just full of stuff that if you're watching it, a group of people would be fun to break down. Right. Okay. Um. And that's on 
Prime. DVD in a charity shop. DVD in a charity that's the shop. Wicked. I like you went straight to Prime then, but oh, that's the Wicked from 2013. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to talk about a William Friedkin film. Sorcerer? Uh, if only. Um, no, this one was made after Sorcerer. Um, this one is called The Guardian. Nice, okay. Weirdly, you can watch on YouTube. Because I don't think it's available on any other streaming services, so therefore I watch it on YouTube. Uh, it's a 1990 domestic thriller slash horror directed by William Freakin, obviously. It's sort of a supernatural version of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, I guess. So a couple have their first child, right? And then they hire this super hot nanny who we realise from the start... It, quite upfront we know as the audience we know she intends to sacrifice this baby to a tree god when he comes of age coming of age in this scenario is it's four weeks old something to do with his blood i'm not sure exactly but anyway four weeks old blood yeah she's not going about um so obviously the normal trajectory of this kind of movie is that the couple will gradually realize how creepy the nanny is but but actually here it's a bit different because the deceit is totally one-sided. They really don't have any clue. And then they finally end up finding out everything via an answering machine machine message. So, <laughs> so your problem is throughout the film you kind of lose that pleasure of watching this gradual realisation from the family. Uh, you know, the clues they don't see and the near misses and stuff. Because... Actually, you have what you have here is this woman who has these magical power powers to instantly clean up blood and clues and stuff, but is too stupid to delete an answering mess answering machine message. So, yeah, it's it's slightly unusual setup. It does have this quite appealing eighties into nineties aesthetic. It's got strong production values. It's got bold, slightly unreal lighting. Of lighting, it's got synthy music, <laughs> which is trying to emulate an orchestra, which is a bit of a 90s trope. Um, and the pacing is good, it's quite a slow burn, punctuated with some very gory violence, actually. But this is William Freakin, after all. The nanny is quite nicely played by a bit of a journeyman actor called Jenny Seagrove, and she's really good in it because she plays her like some kind of like creepily attentive, dead eyed automaton sort of like program to bewitch oh and zander berkeley rocks up in a, in a cameo good good um so yeah freaking he, he he goes for quality over quantity there's not many outright scares but the ones that are there are staged well and they have good gory payoffs so i like that i remember watching this film a lot as a kid when i started watching i thought oh i remember this and i think as a kid i just liked that it was kind of like pretty gory and kind of cool kind of scary at times but now i think i can kind of relate to the struggles of the parents more than anything like trying to get their child to sleep and just the sheer relief that's offered by the nanny and you can kind of see then why they would just accept her weirdness uh just to get a moment's peace but it's a completely ridiculous movie and and I feel like it's that supernatural element that's too often used uh, to cheat, you know, you know, you know, because if yeah, I've read, I've read Stephen King books, yeah, 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 
but you know there are certain scenes which could be if they're grounded in reality could be an exciting exciting scene where it's like oh how are they gonna how how are we gonna get out of this one sort of thing oh and then it's just like oh it's magic okay right it's it's like a narrative get out clause and you never get that feeling like you do in the best thrillers where you're kind of manipulated into somehow hoping the baddie gets away with it this it loses that tension because because it's so one-sided and it's like right we know that she's uh a bitch we know that she's magical so she can get away with everything so it's like okay she don't have that that tension's lost the tension that you get in someone like the hand that rocks the cradle or even the more grounded like domestic thriller stuff like sleeping with the enemy or something like that where it's very grounded and believable um you know maybe it would have been more interesting if there was some ambiguity about this tree god and actually she might just be completely bonkers then maybe there isn't a supernatural element but that would have required a slightly more sophisticated script i suppose so i think it's elevated by being directed by william freakin because he leans into the schlock and he knows how ridiculous it is so it's enjoyable on that level but yeah it's uh it's b going on c movie making really <sighs> bloody hell yeah okay that's the guardian you isn't the guardian youtube was that a film with 4k Okay, wasn't the Guardian a film with Kevin Costner as well? It was. It was a film about Coast Guards. That and yet, was a generic movie, and it also had <laughs> culture. Whoops! And yet, you didn't say the Guardian, not that one, at the start of your review, which is fine. It's That's just true, fine. actually. It, it's fine. It's just not acceptable. <laughs> uh, yes, I watch anything with Kevin Costner, so <laughs> including that. But my God, that film is cliched <laughs> what you need to watch is mr brooks and then you need to slam your <laughs> laptop shut so hard that the glass shatters um i, I just another two minutes are from me so i've got a few more to get through if we can i watched um again this you can see that i'm going to talk about another film that is um rolls on from stuff like um event horizon and this rolls on from training day and crown vic i watched a film called collateral from 2004 the film uh directed by Michael Mann, starring um, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. And this is, I've got to say, again, I've got a feeling you've covered this before, which is why it's a two-minuter. Um, I I have a friend who really, really rates this film, really loves it. And I, I remember watching it with him, and I remember watching it alone. And I think I watched it like a very long time ago as well, and it never grabbed me. And I thought, and again, I watched this when I was ill, and I thought, right, I'm in the mood now to just lie here and really absorb it. But this, there's a quietness about this film, and it's got a fantastic soundtrack, but it doesn't feel, I feel like I'm not getting from it what a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. I, I I love the whole night, you know, the fact that it's set in one night driving around L.A. And, you know, I, lo- I love the, the story is really clever and how it all rolls. It's got some old tech as well because it's of that age. Um, but there's just something about it that almost like Drive. You know how people watch Drive and really suck it off? Yeah. Uh, Drive, not the one with Mark Dacascus and Kadeem Harlison, which is actually good. The one with um, Ryan Gosling in it. Yeah. I feel like this 
I, I, I kind of miss the mark on this film mentally, like I do with Drive, with Ryan Gosling, where I like Ryan Gosling, and I, I really like Tom Cruise, but I, 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 I could never gel with it. I just felt like I was watching a decent film, or a good film, a well-constructed piece of cinema, as opposed to something which was was really sucking me in and off. Yeah, I think I, I think I get what you mean. I probably like it more than you do, but... I know what you mean because it's like this is a film that should literally be it's it feels like it's made for me because this is like what set over one night love it Tom Cruise with a ridiculous hairstyle good uh LA at night directed by Michael Mann cool music uh beautiful like yeah midnight lighting and stuff and but yeah I know what you mean. It's not quite. Why do I not love it? Why do I only like it? Why does it feel functional? Why mm. does it feel like all of the um, ingredients you just mentioned feels that like they just turned up and, and did what you thought they would do? It, yeah. it doesn't. It, I, I don't know. And I, I this it must must be the fourth or fifth time I've I've watched it, and I, and each time I've almost forgotten that I've seen it. And I think part of, maybe for me the problem is heat the Michael Mann film, which is obviously set in LA and has a lot of the same features actually as in extremely professional hitmen and a lot of very atmospheric nighttime scenes and daytime scenes. But, but obviously heat is one of the best films I've made and it's so rich uh, in its narrative tapestry and its themes and so it's it's almost like it's got all the stuff that Collateral has, but a whole lot more. And it's like so it's almost like when you're watching Collateral, I feel like it's like a slightly sillier, stripped down, less uh, rich and compelling version of Heat somehow. Like that's possibly where I am with it. Maybe that is the reason because I love Heat so much. I can't anything else which kind of resembles it from the same director i'm never going to be able to completely be on board with don't know how are you feeling about the sequel uh yeah that's an interesting one i i don't know michael mann's such a mixed bag uh, i i i he's a serious guy i mean i think we talked about this before with this interview with, on the mark maron with mark maron um and he, so he, he knows cinema. He's very serious about cinema. And he, you know, he doesn't just do things lightly. Uh, and obviously he's written a novel. He too is a novelization. I'm just, I just hope, because obviously it involves a lot of jumping around. I think it goes, it shows the characters before Heat, but also after Heat. I just hope that they don't do the whole Irishman thing of CGI de-aging and things, because I found that film unwatchable because yeah. of that factor. And it that is, really bothered me. I, I Yeah. So if he can that get That's a film that would have been good in the eighties or nineties, but now with 4k, it's, it, it just, it's just weird. When Robert De Niro is kicking that bloke on the floor, it's, mm. it's like, just get a stunt doubling. I just, yeah, just, Get other actors, because 
you get other actors to play the younger version you have to get used to it once and then you're in you're done if you've got weird cgi masks over the top of old men then you're constantly reminded of that this isn't real you know you have to get used to it every single scene because you're looking for the seams and yeah it was so distracting and i just could not get into that movie at all so yeah, actually, I think that's probably. I, I don't have any doubts that you can make a compelling narrative. Uh, it's just a question of technology, really. I think, and what he, the choices he makes about casting. Um, is it, I think it's your turn now, is it? Yeah, I've only got one more movie here. Oh, nice. Okay, pussy. Um, yeah, right. Um, this is another film that I could only find on YouTube. And it's called The Last House on the Left. Oh, right, okay. was Wes Craven's debut, made in 1972. So, yeah, the f- if you do intend to watch this, there are, I think there are two versions online. There's the cut-down version and the uncut version, which is, like, three minutes longer or something. But, um, yeah. I mean, not necessarily because you desperately want to see more sadistic violence, but I can imagine the cut version would have some awkward edits in it, which would be quite glaring. Anyway, so, yeah, this is a revenge thriller come backwards horror come torture porn movie. It's about a teenage girl and her friend who are abducted by these escaped criminals and they are taken to the woods and they are assaulted and killed. And the killers end up holding up in one of the girl's parents' house. A quite remarkable coincidence. Anyway, the parents discover the identity of these people and discover what they've done and they fight back. It's a ridiculous storyline and it relies on outrageous coincidences and ridiculous character motivations and frankly impossible plot developments um so the first section is obviously in the woods and that's where it's just pretty nasty but actually a lot of it is a lot of very boring shots of people running around in the woods i didn't recognize any of the cast obviously although martin cove of um karate kid uh, and VFW fame, he plays this idiotic deputy sheriff. So these cops, right, they're unbelievably stupid. They've got this whole bizarre slapstick subplot about them bungling around the place. Um, and they manage to lose their cop car and stuff. And it's really silly. And I guess the purpose is to show how useless law enforcement are at stopping crimes, therefore justifying the use of murderous force to stop these escaped convicts and it is a quite disturbing film not least in the way it uses like juxtapositions like it has this really gentle folk music which all juxtapose against horrendous cries of anguish as people are tortured to death and and so i suppose it has some surreal value in that regard i guess i've read that it is it should be considered a response to the violent images from the Vietnam War at the time, which I think 
that sounds like a pseudo sociological excuse for depraved violence to be honest like the pro- you think about the proliferation of real world violent images today it's got to be much greater than it was back in those days so surely you could just say the same make the same excuse for the completely derided 20 2009 remake you would have thought but anyway i think maybe there is a vietnam allegory there perhaps perhaps in the way that the war was brought back to middle america if you see what i mean but all that any allegories just obfuscated by really badly acted badly edited mutilation scenes and it seems much more about satisfying revenge than any kind of a plausible statement about how say ordinary people are pushed to extraordinary actions by extreme trauma like because when the parents are getting their revenge on these killers of their child like the mother's method of taking down the main bad guy is to literally give him a blowjob and then bite off his dick it's like yes i'm not sure that she'd go to those lengths those creative lengths to get revenge in that situation but okay um and then there's this big climactic battle is two women just rolling around in some leaves um texas chainsaw massacre sprang to mind when i was watching this because that was around the same time maybe same year or a year later anyway around the same time texas chainsaw massacre yeah it's surely no more expensive than this and far less violent and yet much scarier so no excuses really i would not bother with this unless you're a torture porn completist or where's craven completist i suppose but yeah not his finest work clearly his finest work is deadly blessing it's um yeah I, i've never i've never felt the need to sort of really explore where's craven's um oeuvre but this is one that's always kind of cropped up in conversations like you see about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and so on. And I, I just think it, it's always just sounded unpleasant. And yeah. From it what you said, it, it, yeah, just, yeah, I don't. But also cheap and nasty and not clever. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not like with, say, Texas Chainsaw, with that, it felt like, you know, it's, it felt like the arrival of an immediately competent horror vision visionary in the in the frame of Topooper, obviously. But here, it doesn't it doesn't even feel like Wes Craven has a particularly natural knack for or a voice. It's horror. just like, yeah, it's just like it a just, shitty film. Yeah, and I think it, it you know perhaps if Wes Craven hadn't obviously gone on to do Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream and, and all that genuinely good films then i'm not sure this would be remembered i think it would well might still be on youtube i suppose but no one would be watching it yeah not the best sorry last house on the left not very interesting um i i'll carry carry this on actually a little bit and just have a look at the films i got left yeah so with, with, the, with the horror sort of vibe um as, as you know i'm a big fan of nicholas cage and i'm waiting until i can find um what's that film he's in where he just plays himself the unbearable weight of incredible talent yeah. or something like that 
I'm waiting for that to be free to watch. So in the meantime, I thought, well, I fancy some Nicolas Cage. So I put on uh, Grand Isle, 2019 film on Amazon Prime. And this is a film that starts off with a, an attractive older woman uh, buying cookies from Girl Scouts and knock on her doors. And she's a bit weird about it and uh, sort of staring at them as they walk off. And then uh, there's a it cuts forward to that evening or an evening further down the line where... There's some noises going on. This it's kind of one of those New Orleansian houses, if you know what I mean, with lots of like balustrades and windows and everything. Nice. And Nicholas Cage goes downstairs, and someone is is robbing him and escaping. And he makes the comment of something like, "Oh boy, did you choose the rob, wrong house to rob?" Shoots him in the back, so he collapses through a fence. And in the morning, the body's gone. And Nicholas Cage, the next day, has got someone over to like a young, attractive man who looks like a young Bill Pullman, quite frankly, to fix the fence. And he's paying him like triple to fix it before a storm comes and locks him on this island they live on. Of course, he doesn't uh-huh. manage to do it by then. And he ends up staying over and events unfold. And <clears throat> I think it's, it's those films that, you know, when a horror film teases certain situations, like you think, well, you know, the body's gone. Uh, she's staring at those kids really sort of like with lust in her eyes they, they, they're trying to entice this like handsome young man into the house and you think is this like cannibalism are they vampires are they werewolves what's going on um and the film then spends like it's only 97 minutes but it spends like an hour an hour doing this sort of um awkward conversation uh seduction chasey stuff and then in the last 10 minutes they try to like sort of shoehorn in a meaning or mm-hmm. like an, an allegory and you think no no that was very much decided by a committee after this film was actually written wasn't it because this is a trashy horror and you just try to tack something on the end and it, it's it's a it's a an extremely missable nicholas cage film grand isle on prime don't bother do not mm. bother disappointed mm. well i say disappointed literally never heard of it in any bit of it, I have no thoughts on it. <laughs> yeah, and he does churn them out. To be fair. Yeah, you you're done with films now, are you? I'm done. I'm never going to watch oh, them again. Can I? Well, we got 25 minutes. Can I pound through mine if that's cool? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I took a bit of a turn and I watched. I didn't even bother mentioning it on this podcast, but I watched the sequel to uh, Venom. Um, uh-huh. And 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 I was I, I may have mentioned it I might not have don't remember it was just really disappointing but I yes. still realised that I enjoyed Tom Hardy and I find Chris Pine uh, doll like creepy and unbelievable in everything he does so oh, obviously right. I had to watch This Means War a romantic Jesus. comedy I was going to say I can only think of one film where they've been together <laughs> yeah. and it is that film with Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. Have, have you seen this film? I have half watched it right. a while ago. And, and I thought these men are miscast. <laughs> it is. I've just got a couple of things to say. Uh, this is directed by McGee. And the whole film starts off with um, it's produced by Will Smith as well. There's so, so many names here. Um, Chris Pine and, and See, I can Tom imagine Hart. Will Smith in one of their roles. It'd make more sense, I think. Yeah. Um, maybe produced because he thought this is going to go places if I was in it. So I'll just like put some money up and see what happens. Chris Pine and Tom Hardy, uh, thankfully speaking with his normal voice and accent, <clears throat> are two two spies. 
like sort of James Bond-esque spies who have very different lives. Tom Hardy's like he's got he's got a a kind of failed marriage behind him, but he's still in a loving relationship with the or not a loving relationship, but in a mutually respectful relationship with the, the the mother of his child. And Chris Pine is just an absolute playboy. And they both they Tom Hardy signs up to a dating site, and because he's having trouble meeting a woman, and he meets. Reese Witherspoon's character was like a product tester in LA. They're all in LA, I think. And then after the date that goes really well, she bumps into Chris Pine and they kind of have a chemistry as well. So the whole film is they find out they're dating the same person. They're both spies. They've both got means of, you know, getting to know her better through technological means. And, uh, um, and, and, it's like who's going to win her heart sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to completely spoil this because, um, it, when I was watching it, I thought, well, it's kind of set up from the start, isn't it? She goes on a natural date with Tom Hardy. It was genuinely kind of charming and a little bit, um, uh, he's very understated and humble and he's a good man. He's a good father and he's like respectful of his ex-wife and she, she genuinely connects with him and the date ends. And then she goes down to this video store to get a film to take home. And Chris Pine basically hassles her until she agrees to go on a date which she in the future leaves because he's such a twat until he basically sort of harries and hassles her until it actually changes her personality. And at the end of the film, through a sequence of events, she settles with Chris Pine at the cost of actually morphing her own personality into kind of matching his. And, and I thought that really doesn't make any sense, but I thought, of course it does because the film is so like badly written that it just even though nothing has changed in Tom Hardy's character because he's always been kind of... Um, even throughout the film when they're trying to woo her using these technological means, Tom Hardy's just kind of finding stuff out about it, finding it interesting and sort of trying to learn more about it, whereas Chris Pine's character is actively cheating and, like, trying to twist her personality and claiming he does and knows things he doesn't. So it's really sinister. And then at the end of the film, when she settles with Chris Pine... For no reason, just for it to have a Hollywood ending, he just like gets back with his ex-wife. So it's like, oh, yeah. they both got someone now. Um, and I thought this film is so brainless and it like takes no risks and isn't funny. And I was watching it, and I I thought when I was watching it, I was enjoying it, but actually, I think I was just so intrigued as to where it would go and how how quietly offensive it would be to everyone involved. Um, so I like if I was a if I was a feminist woman watching this film, I think I'd have a lot more to say than just wow, which is what I do have to say about it. Um, but yeah, it was like I, I thought like, you're really like taking liberties here, and and this is 2012. These the people involved don't they're, they're at a point in their career they don't need to be doing this kind of shit. This could all be a load of 20 year olds with like, the first or second film, and they got nothing to prove. It was really. It's not just disappointing, it's, it's quite interesting to watch um, with the situation of today's sort of gender politics. Interesting in terms of, like, how misguided it is. Yeah. yeah. You know, especially because of, like, Witherspoon's personal views in life. Um, mm. It's very interesting. You think, why why do they do this? It, it's the... Yeah, but then a lot of rom-coms are sinister when you boil them down to their essential elements, aren't they? I mean, I've talked before about The Notebook with Ryan Gosling, which is deeply troubling. But um, 
that's the one where to get with the girl at the start he threatens to kill himself unless she goes on a date with him which is just the the most horrendous manipulation emotional manipulation imaginable but yeah anyway so they are all a bit sinister anyway aren't they i guess it just uh, McGee directing a badly miscast badly misguided rom-com <sighs> yeah it just, it's just not, not appealing it's not a recipe for gold, is it? Although I've yeah. yet to tell you about the, the the story of how Faye and I first met, where she was walking past my window, and she didn't know I was, and I tapped on the window and invited her in, and I said, mm. stand there. And uh, she just stood in my living room, really confused, and I, and I stood in a stool and put a belt around my neck, threw mm. it over a rafter, tied myself up, and held a razor to my wrist, and just said, <laughs> if you don't tell me that you'll marry me, love me, and bear me a child, I'll kill us both, me first. <laughs> but but then look look where we ended up, Rupert. So you know you yeah. can't just you can't uh, judge a book by its cover. Uh, Did she frown at that point and say, "Hang on, so you're going to kill yourself before killing me?" She pointed at me and like really sort of really thrust her finger into my face and said, "You are so lucky. I'm from Bridgend." <laughs> Slash true okay. Um <laughs> I watched for the first time Sunshine, following on from my event Horizon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thing, and um, yeah, just another two minutes. This is a film where the the sun is dying, and uh, a crew of astronauts and physicists go up to um, try and basically, literally, literally kick it till it works effectively. Yeah. And it starts killing Murphy Roseburn, Cliff Curtis again from his Training Day uh, appraisal earlier on. Chris Evans and Benedict Wong, Michelle Yeoh, and um, they've all got. Cast. It's a really good cast, and it's directed by Danny Ball. So they, what I liked about this was it was it gave me the Event Horizon vibes, where it's just them on an extremely long long journey, um, and it's not fixated on their lives at home. It focuses mm. on the sort of the moment to moment action. And what I was surprised about this film the most is obviously as they go they go to um, as they go into the sun to kickstart it with this it's like a solar shield thing they've got they realize that the other there's another ship or craft that has been up there a few years before that they everyone lost contact with and they they there's this sort of a distress beacon coming from it and they they have to decide whether they go to this distress beacon and pick it up on the way and so they have sort of two chances instead of one at kickstarting the yeah. sun or just stay on the on their travels and it's a very stylish film and the editing is quite irritating, especially when it comes to the end. Yes, towards the end, it's a real problem. But I, I really enjoyed Chris Evans' character in this because at the start, yeah. he pissed me off because he was so like straight and direct and to the point. And there was, and because all the other characters were about sort of musing on life and, and the subtlety and their mission, and he's like completely like boom, boom, boom. But as the film goes on, you realise he's actually kind of the unsung hero because he's so. Mm dedicated and it's probably one of his best performances because it's so it's so straightforward the problem i had was uh, much like with um event horizon where as the film goes on and it kind of gets more horrific yes. and unravels with this it does that but also it does it in a really dated way where with it without giving anything away because it's a good film that everyone should watch sunshine by danny ball 2007 and it was on uh netflix or prime the problem is that when it turns to horror it doesn't stick to his guns like Event Horizon. It it basically uses editing, like um, yes, it does. 
editing as a sort of weapon and it instantly dates it and makes it yeah very tedious very quickly and by editing we should explain that it we're not just talking about quick cuts or anything like that he is throwing everything and the kitchen sink into the frame like it's the frame is hacked to death when mm. this new element Threat. is introduced yeah. towards toward in the final section and it, it like you've got images overlaid on top of each other you've got scratched up images you've got the frame is wobbling around and it's uh, and of course given the subject matter there's like light bloom everywhere and it just looks awful and it, and it really doesn't give you any sense of threat at all because because it's such a it's like an esoteric threat it's like You've got no idea what is actually uh, threatening. The music, the music exactly. is screeching and wailing. Yeah. And it got to the point where whenever it happened, I just looked at my phone because I mm. thought I'm not going to get anything from what I'm looking at on the screen. No. Um, at all. It reminded me a little bit of that vampire under film with um, Don the Dragon Wilson, where I just oh couldn't God. look at the screen because I got a headache. So I just thought, I don't know what's going on. I may as well just not look and then wait till the screaming, twisting metal is finished and then look back at the screen and see who's dead. <laughs> Like a like a turbo version of uh, underwater. <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, yeah baffling, and it's just such a pity because it's got so many good sunshine. It's got so many good. Um, it's got such a variety of kind of peril sequences before that, like because it's not all horror really at all up to that point. It's more like just constantly trying to solve problems. Like it's there's a, br- solving, there's yeah. a brilliant sequence where it's they're kind of fixing the heat shield and it's turning and they've got to get back inside before you know the glare of the sun hits them because they'll be instantly vaporized and it's that's a really cool sequence uh, and, and yeah and, and i think that's the whole thing this it, it quite it captures like a leaning more towards tarkovsky than say um uh, event horizon like pandorum the the sort of quiet sacrifice where mm. people you get the, you genuinely get the sense these people have been alone in space and they're quite a disparate group of people thrown together and and they are kind of losing touch with their humanity so when mm. when when it comes to the opportunity for for someone to like do it like almost a throwaway sacrifice for like the the, the, the betterment of humankind or survival of humanity they, they do it in a in a kind of like a ghostly way like yeah. they're, they're not really their true selves because they're so disconnected from humanity because of their mm. physical distance to it that it is quite sort of creepy and sad and i and i like that and then of course it just takes this turn in the last 20 minutes and you think i can't even look at the screen now <laughs> it's quite yeah. extreme isn't it really quite yeah. extreme turn where you literally can't, physically cannot yeah. face the screen you what you generally wonder if there's like just a cut where the film is just if you're like better yeah just a different yeah it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's written by Alex Garland. Also. Yes, it is. Yeah, the beach dude. Yeah. And, of course, he went on to do Annihilation. Yeah. Which, again, is a very mixed bag of a horror movie. Um, yeah. So Sunshine uh, is worth it, though, isn't it? It's worth it, but it's, I can't imagine anyone would, would think, like, clap their hands and think, ah, oh, you be go, it's kicking off now. It, it, yeah. It's not... All the things, all the things that you're sort of like drip fed and you love and the build is just literally just, it's like cutting the head off a hydra. You're like, oh, there you go. That's sad then. Now it's a horror. 
it's really it's it's the most like bizarre change because the whole film is so sort of quietly cerebral and thoughtful up to that point anyway yeah and so well crafted (laughs) it really it really is bizarre um and you think that it must be danny ball's vision because he's quite a sort of mercurial personality from what i gather so you think he would just say i'm not i'm not gonna you know this is what i want either this or nothing yeah i'm not sure i mean I suppose he has done other horror. He did 28 Days Later. Mm. But that kind of had a bit of the hyperactive nature about it, didn't it? Mm. Um, so again, it's, it's his, it's his mm-hmm. vision. It is definitely his vision, yes. Not sure that horror is really his field. But, I don't know, maybe there are people who just love that kind of slightly incomprehensible thing. Not I. No. Um, so yeah, I've got a couple of more. I watched Night and Day when I was ill, um, film with uh, Cameron Diaz and Don Cruz. I did, I, I didn't realise we're in Vanilla Scar together, which is a very different film to this, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, this is just a this is just a, a James Mangold film about how uh, Cameron Diaz goes on a plane and Tom Cruise reveals himself to be a spy uh, and ends up kicking ass mid-flight drugging her and saying right just stay away from me but she sort of they get magnetized towards each other and into this like ridiculous plot i thought it would be like really um like sort of frothy and forgetful but actually it seems quite odd because there's obviously a massive budget behind this and because tom cruise is so magnetic and i i forgot that i haven't seen cameron diaz in a film for a long time and she's got like a good screen presence as kind of a like a silly ditzy blonde like she's got comedic timing and i'm pretty sure she's semi-retired oh she has actually semi-retired so i was watching this and i thought i'm actually like really enjoying it it's it's like a silly spy film and and Mm -hmm. um yeah they they you know the um tables get turned and they're sort of glow trotting and the dialogue is sort of spiky between them but it it really does work apart from a, a few odd edits um, that I can imagine would piss Tom Cruise off during some of the stunt sequences because he would obviously do his own stunts and there are some, gen- especially when it's like jumping car to car, where it's like a clumsy cut where he will like leap and then you'll just see him where he wouldn't land, like in, in a seat uh-huh. or something and I thought, well, that they didn't quite have enough footage here but um, but yeah it, I, I can imagine watching this again in a couple of years because it's a really breezy, fun um like light-hearted comedic spy film that actually works it like actually has good stunts it has fun mid-action dialogue which is extremely rare and they're both kind of tongue-in-cheek funny like i never laughed out loud but i was amused for the running time which is 109 minutes so I was very surprised at that. I actually thought that my brother Transvaal was a huge fan of this. And when he came over the house last week, I said, oh, I watched Night and Day. And he went, right. And I said, I thought that that was like a film you really loved. And he went, no, I just mentioned it as a stepping stone in Arkansas. And I thought, ah, oh, okay. So when people mention things in Arkansas, I assume they just think it's the best film ever made. So, um, yeah, so moving on from uh, Night and Day to The Mummy, not that one. I watched the 2017 Mummy for the first time with Tom Cruise. So sorry. And I remember you saying that the game was better than the film, and the game was basically above average. 
<laughs> yes, I would. I credit the Mummy as being the only truly bad Tom Cruise movie. It's bear in mind. I got off this right. I watched. This was the last Tom Cruise film I watched. So I watched Night and Day. I'd watched Collateral, and I think there was one other I watched that I can't see at the moment. And I thought I need more Tom, and I put this on, <laughs> and I was watching it, and it's got um. It's got a person in it that I'm never sure of. I think it's um, Jake Johnson. He was in, um, what was the time travel film? Um, something not required, not batteries not required. Um, safety not guaranteed. Safety not guaranteed. Thank you very much. Like, it was, it was, that was one of the few like really indie mumblecore uh, sentimental films that I really liked because of the uh, Mark Duplass was in it and he's like weirdly magnetic. But Jay Johnson was in this, and I thought, right, so this is a reboot of, of trying to reboot an entire Dark Universe classic Universal Monsters franchise. So instantly, right, there's a lot of pressure there. But the film is so, like, flat. Um, mm. Because, obviously, I, I did a brief run-through of the previous Mummy films with Brendan, um, almost said Gleason then, that would be different, Brendan Fraser. Um, from like 1990 to 2008 and they literally got worse as they went on and the 2008 film is like really flat so the reboot of this like nine years later and I just thought I didn't know what they were trying to do I didn't because none of the CG was none of the not the CG so much as the um, like when Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll turned into Mr. Hyde the monster lever me thought right here we go and it was just basically him talking in a slightly different accent with slightly different colored skin. And I'm like, mm, that's not what I want from like a $300 million film or whatever. I want like, I want, I want to like think, yes, this is, this is awesome. This is, this is, uh, this is, it wasn't even up to the extraordinary league of gentlemen standards, quite frankly. And, um, and I was watching Tom Cruise in it. I thought he's doing like a good job of carrying it, but this everything around him is just so boring and flat every single plot point every single turn every single dialogue exchange the the dialogue is especially bad it's um someone saying come over here and then they go over there and then someone turning around and saying god we shouldn't have come over here and it's just that for two hours as if it's like um banter and yeah i just was watching and i thought this is really really awful and even at the end of the film slight spoiler when one of the main characters gets possessed by like an eternal demonic entity and is shuffling around in the darkness i thought he's gonna right he's gonna finally turn around and i am gonna actually see a monster i'm going to see a monster that i think oh that's quite cool actually no never comes out the shadows and um and, and and ironically, that's pretty much what the whole the um, dark universe did is after this film, it never came out the shadows. <laughs> shadows, yeah. So um, yeah, it, it it's not really. I I've got nothing to say about it. It, it was just. It I, I could see why it didn't go anywhere, and I can see why it. It was just. It wasn't like a noble failure. Or misguided. No. It, you could see it. You could feel it trying to start a franchise. Oh, it Instead, was. It was. Yeah, it reeked. Of, I, I think. I think that really that adds to the flatness and the plasticness of it, of it all. The fact that they were kind of 
hyping it up to be part of this new metaverse, you know, because obviously they were trying to create something like Marvel, I guess, out of the Universal Monsters. And But saying that up front, it's the equivalent of, you know, like when a bad movie opens itself up to a sequel at the end, and you're just thinking that is presumptuous, frankly. But to, to advertise it in that way, it just means you're watching it, and you're like, it's almost under even greater scrutiny. Because you're like, well, I'm not just watching this as a one and done. I'm watching this as potentially the start of a whole new, like, franchise sprawling franchise covering a whole host of classic horror characters and it totally fumbled at the yeah. first step it, it was there was nothing interesting in it at all at yeah. all it's, it's okay legit bad um so we're up to uh the, the two hour mark now um i've got a couple i'll keep for next time because I, I got through a lot more than i thought i would which is impressive awesome. um so we'll, should we do the film of the week then talk about the Arkansas for the future? Yes. Let's... Well, mine, all the films I watched were pretty bad. <laughs> all right. I suppose if I had to, like, if, if I was going to recommend any of them, it would probably be The Guardian by William Freakin from 1990. And it's not that good, so don't go out of your way. But... Uh, don't push too hard, but, you know, you're not getting shares, mate. Um <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I've watched, I've watched a bit of Tosh as well. I, I I'm gonna like everyone loves Training Day, and mm. I think I would say just because of its its timelessness in my, in my personal vortex, I would say Event Horizon. I would say if anyone has a passing interest in sci-fi horror, just watch Event Horizon because it it, it is solid. I'm, I'm I might watch Pandorum soon at some point. Like Collateral seems like the way to go. And the wicked was silly, silly group fun, mm. but um, so I feel like Sunshine lost its way far more than Event Horizon did. Yes, I mean Event Horizon at least stayed vaguely consistent. Well, yeah. and, and at least I could like look at the screen to see what was happening. <laughs> was a bonus when he watched the movie. <coughs> yeah. And so. Sean P- and Sean Pertwee's in it, which always makes me think, oh my god, I need to watch Dog Soldiers again. <laughs> yeah. And he instantly elevates any movie because he reminds you to watch Dog Soldiers again. Um, so in terms of the Arkansas, I think I think we should go for <laughs> Meg Tilly to Benedict Wong. Bloody nice. You've got to be careful there, right? That's a good one. Mm. Um, like Meg Tilly being in, in the um, film you watched called, what was it again? One Dark Knight. Benedict Wong, though, wasn't he in Marvel? Well, maybe. And the, I don't want to give anything away. Well, I, 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 well, the reason I say this is because I'm fed up of Marvel coming up. <laughs> like, because of course people get to Marvel and there's such an expansive universe. So, can if you you've chosen Meg Tilly? Okay, all right. You, you make it's Meg Tilly two. Someone who's not in fucking Marvel. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, so I'm looking at the film. So Meg Tilly is one of your films. I'm going to look at my my movies now. Okay. I'm going to say Meg Tilly. Kind of Tom Jane, because obviously he was in Punisher. I'm going to say Meg Tilly. <laughs> Two. 
Mm. Oh, this is good. I like this. Meg Tilly. Two. Sean Pertwee. Okay. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> Easy peasy, mate. Um. All right. Excellent. So yeah, that's uh, Meg Tilly to Sean Pertwee. I love you yeah. very much. And um, we should we should do this again soon, like maybe like at some point in the next month. Oh yeah. Have you, have, thought, it? have you got any other any movies that you're like lining up to watch or? No, not particularly. I'm. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is out tomorrow on Amazon Prime, so it might be a bit of a Savalas episode oh. next time. I'm excited yeah. about that. So we we all cheat. I'm um I'm going to be watching. We got sent a screener for the DC Super Pets, so oh, yeah. I'm going to be covering that next week as well. Excellent. Okay. But until then. I hope that at some point there's like a burning sensation between your buttocks and mm-hmm. you, you're like, oh, I've got to go upstairs, love. And then you pull your trousers down and you put a mirror on the floor angled up at your rectum. And then you look, you look into a mirror in front of you that reflects back to the mirror behind you at your rectum. And then you sort of like searching in your cheeks, like, what is that? What is that? And you pull it out and it's like a some sort of like, like paper covered in in paprika and then you unfold it you're like what is this what's this doing at my house why is it covered in chili flakes it's a fiver rupert it's a fiver 